1: All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. Corporate sponsors may from time to time be the subject of buy and or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. However, as host of Turning Hard Times into Good Times, Jay Taylor retains the right to provide objective opinions on behalf of subscribers and to his listening audience regardless of sponsorship. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. When you load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
3: Welcome. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you today from Vancouver, British Columbia. Lovely Vancouver, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, in my view. And uh, I I want to thank all of you for listening to this show. Uh, It's really what makes it possible. If we didn't have any listeners, we wouldn't be talking to you. Uh, And it's been very gratifying to me as I travel to these various places around the country and into Canada that there are an increasing number of people who are really enjoying our show. They tell me how much they appreciate the guests that we have on and our regular guests that we have on. Uh, we will talk and we'll talk to two of them in a couple of minutes. Um, I also want to thank the sponsors for this show. They also are essential to making it possible. Our first sponsor has been Coral Gold. That's a company that trades on the Toronto Exchange. Its symbol is CLH, trading at about fifty cents uh, in US. money these days. It is also a company that has some two million ounces of gold resource in the ground in its Nevada property. Next week, we will actually be talking to the company's president, David Wolfen, who will tell us more about the company and its its plans going forward. Uh, this week, our special guest is former Congressman Joseph O'Guardi. He has been the only certified public accountant to ever be elected to the House of Representatives, and I think that's there's a pretty good explanation for that. You see. Accountants are really interested in, and their goal in life and their purpose in life is to shed the light on the truth with respect to financial matters. That's not always been the greatest concern to Washington, unfortunately, to our government. That maybe explains why not too many CPAs are in our government and why it's made up mostly of lawyers who know how to wordsmith and say anything they want to say with a sentence. Um, In any event, we will have Congressman Diaguardi to tell us how... The U.S. Congress really uses Enron like accounting tactics to really dis- to, to keep the truth from the people. Unfortunately, we think it's very, very, inf- very, very important information for you to know as a citizen of the United States. But before we get to Congressman Diaguardi, we're going to talk to two of our three regular guests, uh, Chen Lin and Lena Monas uh, Roger Wiegand is actually traveling in the northwestern part of the United States this week looking for a home. He's going to move from Michigan to a lovely location just south of the Canadian border. Uh, Chen, I want to start with you first. How are you today?
4: Great. How are you, today?
3: Oh, fantastic. You know, I just love to live up here all the time. This is a beautiful place, but in any event, New York's not too bad either. Uh, Chen, we were talking a little bit yesterday about the Chinese economy. Uh, I'd like to ask you, do you think, you know, a lot of the world is really depending on China as to replace the American consumer as the world's growth engine for the global economy. Do you think that's that's a, a realistic prospect anytime soon?
4: I think it can help, you know, basically help, uh, maybe help the economy stabilize. But to grow the economy really needs, you know, United States and uh, European, you know, European nations
1: to, to grow.
4: Uh, China has been aggressively stimulus. I just heard they're going to have a second-round stimulus um, hmm. package coming out, basically, encourage people in, to replace their cars, their old TV, old fridge, uh, so they turn to the government, they give them credit to buy new ones. That's for the country. I mean, for the, inside the countryside last time, this is for the city, you know, people living in a big city. So I, I think that's probably going to, uh, uh, you know, increase the demand for energy and base metal even more. Mm-hmm.
3: How much are these stimulus packages, Chen?
4: Well, it's hard to say. Usually, in in the tens of billions of yeah. dollars, it depends on how many people turn in their old cars, you know, old old mm-hmm. electronics. So, and it has been pretty effective. So right now, China's car already overtaken the you know, United States, as the largest yes. automobile you mm-hmm. uh-huh. know market in the world. So, so it, they want to stimulate them a little more. So, kind of strange, but they, that's what they're doing right now. So
3: you think it can help, uh, but you don't think it can replace the uh, the U.S. consumer as the engine for the world's global economy?
5: No, no,
4: no. I, I, I don't. I think China's economy still very far. Away. It's going to take
3: time then for that
4: to happen. And a lot of places, very poor areas, so mm-hmm. they think how much, is so much they can consume.
3: Uh, Chen, you yeah. mentioned last uh, yesterday also when we were speaking that um, the Chinese are not very happy with a major mining company. Uh, I think, namely, it was uh, maybe RTZ. And you suggested that it may actually have some repercussions with respect to how the Chinese go forward in their foreign investment in, in natural resources. Would you care to talk about that?
4: exactly. yeah, I read quite a few commentary over the weekend in China, and people are furious about the real Tinto deal uh, so basically, as you, you may know this, the deal was in February at the, in the worst of the market China chinaco through chinaco they basically gave a, they, they they said they would invest uh, to uh, Twenty billion dollar to Rio Tinto, and then as soon as market recovered, you know, Rio Tinto basically say you know goodbye. <laughs> we don't want yeah. to, and uh, somehow the deal wasn't structured right, so they, the break up fee only one percent. So you know, like Chinese scholar was furious because you know, at twenty billion, if in February or March, anyone if you invest twenty billion, you get fifty, a hundred percent return by now already. You know, you have it either in oil or in copper, in anything. Right. But right now they only get that one percent break up fee from Rio Tinto. And they feel they were abandoned by those uh you know western mining companies, so I think right now uh, there's a lot of coal. i think I mean, what I see is China probably going to change the direction from the natural resource instead of going to the Western nation to probably buy going to buy a resource company closer to home like yeah. Southeast Asia or even in Africa, so you know because they feel like uh, they are being treated as second class citizens
3: like they're being used so so if I understand what you're telling me is that RTZ uh, relied on the Chinese when they needed them, and then when they didn't need them, they said, well, we don't need you anymore, goodbye. And the Chinese were counting, perhaps, on a longer-term relationship with RTZ. Is that the, is that the scoop?
4: Exactly. And uh, I also, you know, last time China tried to buy a U.S. Uh, oil company, that was 100%. This time it's only like 19%. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a big, big stake, but it's like sure. $20 billion when someone really needed it at that time. <laughs> so as soon as the you know, market re- recovered, they say, okay, thank you goodbye <laughs> so yeah. so they yeah, were so very, very happy about that
3: um, i did hear uh, i think i saw a deal uh, mentioned here on bnn television though today where there was a smaller gold company uh in canada i believe that the chinese some chinese group were looking at buying but but i hear what you're saying chen if that's really true you know could have real repercussions for a lot of the kind of mining companies that i follow in
4: my newsletter Potentially, I think that, uh, especially for those uh, resource-based metal and energy, I think China probably this will be the the largest attempt for China. You know,
2: to yeah. buy
4: in the Western country. I don't think yeah. they will buy anymore. They <laughs> so, won't be back. Well, that's, that's probably too bad yeah. in a way. Chen, you, your uh, model portfolio.
3: You know, what we do, we we sort of keep track of the average gains that you have in your portfolio. So far this year, you're up about thirty nine percent. But really, you've done a lot better than that. I believe in terms of your your own management of money because uh, you know you you don't buy everything in the same amounts and you don't you know and you and you reinvest the money and we don't take those factors into consideration. Could you tell our listeners a little bit how your um, your
4: real portfolio has been performing so far this year? Well, you know, my personal portfolio has up over 100 percent, but you know a lot of times those um, I like even in my newsletter when I buy and then I sell, I take you know. Thirty percent, forty percent profit in like a week or two. Then I move on to the next target and move on, so so on so forth. So you know, so it's a little bit different than the, uh, uh than than the uh, you know uh, than the actual portfolio. And also, I tend to overweight the the gold. You know, like for example, my favorite gold company, which is Apollo Gold and Oceania Gold. That's yeah. my two biggest position, and both of them up over hundred percent, I believe. So those are you know my favorite company. I tend to overweight in my personal portfolio.
3: Hey, Chen. That sounds great. Uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to leave it at that. I've got to talk to Lena here. I realize I only got a couple of more minutes in this segment. Uh, thank you very much, Chen, for coming on. Stick with us a minute longer, uh, Lena. You there?
6: Hey, Jay. I'm here.
3: Lena. Uh, so very quickly here, we've only got about three minutes left. So
6: yeah.
3: Uh, do you uh, wh- what is your thinking now in terms of uh, of the U.S. dollar? You know, one of the things that I noticed on Friday that was alarming to me was we had a huge run-up in the short end of the yield curve. The two-year Treasury went from about 85 basis points to 130 basis points. What's your take on that?
6: Exactly, we saw quite a big move on the Treasuries and that was actually a big move uh, on the upside. Um, don't forget that on Friday, Jay, we had the non-farm payroll data. Um, the non-farm payroll numbers were a bit, slightly better than expected in the terms that instead of minus 500, it was minus 350. Therefore, the uh, traders um, bought the dollar back Uh, and had more confidence that probably the recovery is here uh, sooner rather than later. However, um, we didn't really notice the um, unemployment rate, which uh, reached 25-year highs at 9.6. There was a whole mixed feeling about where the economy goes, and since then, Monday, Tuesday, the uh, stocks and equities are trading really mixed. So what we saw on Friday, it was a one thing uh, coming, and then on Monday and Tuesday, the whole thing changed again.
3: So back to a uh, back to a weaker dollar or stronger? Yes, dollar, uh, exactly. Dollar but on,
6: Fridays, uh, on Friday, on uh, Friday we saw dollar appreciating again, and yesterday, Monday, uh, we also saw dollar gaining against the euro and the pound. However, today, uh, come today, we see uh, right now as we speak the euro and the pound fighting back against the dollar, and the dollar is weak. Therefore, the crude oil and the gold is appreciating once again. Which may I say that. That shows how fragile the trading conditions are at the moment, yeah. and it's the fact that traders do not really know which way to go. They're waiting for clear sign. One little
3: set of data causes them to change directions. So
6: Absolutely. I mean, we, we see that it's not really fundamentally driven anymore. It's more financially driven, because it's all about the headlines, it's all about the market sentiment. They don't really pay attention in the economic numbers, but all it's about, all uh, about the emotion that the U.S. government, you know, President Obama, for example, yesterday has told everybody that he's going to give 600,000 jobs back to the people yeah. uh, with this stimulus plan, and everybody does not really. Believe this anymore. Nobody buying into that. Lena, is...
3: let me ask you because we're just about out of time here. Sorry. Sure. Apologies. I took too much time away from you. <laughs> no problem. I uh, well, we just want to ask you uh, where's the buck going next week? Where's it going the rest of this week? And what's your prediction for where it's going next week?
6: Sure. So far, we see that the dollar looks weak and a euro dollar and a pound dollar are ready to break on the upside. As long as uh, – and the same with the oil. The oil, I have a feeling that it's going to go and re- retest the 70. At the moment, it's 69-something, and it's going to retest the 70. If it breaks, then we can see 71 to 72. And the euro dollar, if it breaks 141, we can have further upside on 142 and 143. Wow.
3: So it's looking pretty weak. You know, I'd like to ask you about the bond vigilantes, but I guess we don't have that much time. Uh, I'm told here that we only have a few seconds Okay. You're almost too young to remember the bond vigilantes. I'm old enough to remember the bond vigilantes of the of the 70s, as the government printed more money, went deeper and deeper into debt.
5: Exactly. We had
3: uh, the bond market saying, "That's enough already. You know, we don't want to buy these things, and we're going to have to have much higher interest rates." Do you think that's coming?
6: The high uh, interest rates are coming, uh, Jane. We discussed this this morning. Um, There is no way uh, that inflation won't uh, be up again. And this is where the real trouble starts. And we are waiting in the – don't forget that yesterday there was speculation from traders that the Fed will hike on its next monetary policy meeting in September. Mm-hmm. Today, the, the members came out and said, no, that's not happening. However, the inflation will start to happen, and then where well, the real problems are starting. Therefore, that's why we've got to be careful of the dollar direction and the stocks as well later on in the month.
3: Well, the markets will dictate, that's for sure, and the clock dictates sure. to us. It's time to take a break. We'll be right back with Congressman Dio Guardi. It's a must-listen to, folks. Don't go away. We'll be
1: right back.
2: more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.
1: Business Owners Speak fills a long-neglected niche in the national media coverage of American business. The myriad of challenges and opportunities facing small business owners and entrepreneurs are addressed at ground level in a positive, business-like manner. We face the realities of meeting payroll and being completely dependent upon the success of a business for which we alone are responsible. So loosen your tie, business owner. Bring along your own experiences and log on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Network. For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today. At coralgold.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store.
2: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the website for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Now back to our program.
3: Welcome back. I am really honored to have the Honorable Congressman Dio Guardi, who had been elected to Congress as a two-term congressman. But what's really unique about Congressman Dio Guardi is he's the only certified public accountant to ever have been elected to the House of Representatives. And, uh, you know, when I say Honorable Congressman Dio Guardi, Honorable is a, is a term, it's a, it's a title for all congressmen. But this congressman, I think, deserves it in real terms because he is out there working extremely hard to shed the light to the American people on on what is going on in the U.S. government, deceptive accounting practices. And, you know, he, he can see that because that's his profession as an accountant. Uh, and I would like to have you, just before we get started with the congressman, uh, truthingovernment.org is a website that you should go to where you can really uh, follow the work that the congressman has done. Uh, over the years since he left uh, since he left public service. Uh, uh, really, to start another public service, it's probably even more valuable. Congressman, welcome to our show.
5: Thank you, Jay. Nice to be with you. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, I just have to put kind of a modifier on the only CPA. I'm the only practicing CPA. In other words, I spent 22 years in the world's largest accounting firm at that time, Arthur Anderson, and uh-huh. left there to run for Congress. Nobody else had ever done that. Uh, I did find uh, five other CPAs, but they were attorneys who passed the CPA exams in states that you didn't need the experience. Okay, they, of lawyers. So I just wanted okay, to make very that good. Well,
3: that's that's an important clarification too, because there is a difference between having a degree and actually being working in the trenches, as you did with uh, Arthur Anderson, that prestigious firm at the time.
5: At the time, and you know, it's amazing. You talk about prosecutorial hubris. Here, the Justice Department goes after the entire firm, fifty thousand employees not the three partners in Houston that, that committed whatever those acts were with Enron. And, uh, you know, the firm's lost its reputation, lost its business, and two years later the Supreme Court rules 9-0 to zero in favor of Arthur Anderson. Uh, I mean, but the firm was dead. It's incredible.
3: That is incredible. Well, uh, Congressman... Why do you think it is that that CPAs are not more prevalent? I mean, we have have quite a few more doctors. We have some doctors. Well,
5: we don't have enough doctors and engineers, but we are seeing, I think, a dozen doctors in the House and Senate. And, by the way, I am the only practicing CPA in the House and Senate, so it's the entire Congress. Uh, I'm glad to see that more professionals in the last 20 years are coming in, as well as entrepreneurs. But, by far, the major profession represented is the legal profession, and that might be natural to most because we're talking about the legislative body of government. Yes. Any of these uh, lawyers come out of the uh, the, the, Senate, the local Senate in the state and the assemblies in the various states, and then they come up a notch and they run for the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there should be more uh, accountants and other professionals. One of the reasons that you find that is that it's very difficult to run for office. You know, it's two different things, being a congressman and running for Congress, you have no idea uh, what it takes to run for major office in uh, the United States today. I mean, the the, the communications needs. Uh, I had a hire in those days. Roger Ailes, believe it or not, the guy that became the president of Fox was my political consultant, and I spent hours with him, and you know, spent a lot of money over four years to convert my presentation from what it was in business when I was selling Arthur Anderson and myself and my services to what I needed to do to get people to vote for me. You know, mm-hmm. people don't want to know how bright you are. Mm-hmm. In fact, Ailes told me, hey, they want to know how good they are, and you've got to listen to them. If you want their vote, you better be listening to them, not talking to them. Yeah. You've got to answer their oh. questions, obviously. So it was a big turnaround, and I think there are many things that CPAs can bring to the table but they also need to know it is a vastly different kind of environment. I would hope that we could go back to the schools, and in fact, my own alma mater is Fordham University, and I'll be speaking there uh, again next year, and I'm going to the seniors in the business school. I graduated with a Bachelor of Science for, from a Jesuit school. You just can't take business. You've got to take philosophy, theology, English, and you graduate with a BS and not just a a Bachelor of Business Administration, sure. but I have to go and try to get them to think about my experience, which was, hey, I built up my, my, uh, uh, my independence, I saved some money, I was there at Arthur Anderson 22 years, and I left. But I had savings so that if, God forbid, I didn't win, I could fall back on something. Sure. Not that I was going to go back to Arthur Anderson. And I said to myself, if I don't win, I could become an entrepreneur of some sort. Sure. I was 43 at the time, I'm now 66. Now, we need to cultivate that kind of thinking in professionals, that they should build a career and then sometime later on in their life think of public service as a second career, whether they're in their 40s, 50s, or 60s.
3: Right, of real service then instead of making uh, serving the people rather than the people serving you, which was the idea of our founding fathers, I believe. You know, Congressman, your practical Experience was very, very valuable, and is valuable even more now. I think out of Congress in a way because you're letting people know what's really going on. Also, though, I think what's important, as I read a little bit about your background, is your your humble origin. I mean, to me, that's very important because you can see the world as it exists for most people, and not you know as those with that were born with a silver spoon in their mouth might view the world. If your father came to America in 1929, I believe. Um, looking for the streets paved with gold but found something quite different and struggled and brought up his family. Uh, Very, very honorable background. Could you talk just momentarily about your father? We want to get into some of these nitty-gritty things that that you're going to teach us, but could you just uh, talk a little bit about your father and your mother and and what role they had to do in in bringing you up and making you who you have been?
5: Well, they're both from Italy. Uh, My father came here in 1929, of old years, to come to America looking for a job. And, you know, most of the people who came here were not people who were very literate. They were people uh, who were farmers, especially from southern Italy. Uh, They did go to grammar school. My dad had a fourth-grade education in Italy, couldn't uh, go here, because as soon as he got here in 1929, his father was ill. He had three sisters and a mother to help support, so he went to Harlem, started shining shoes, and realized that not too far from there was the Bronx Terminal Market, where he could buy greens, uh, collard greens, kale, mustard greens, and there's a very large African-American population in Harlem. And uh, within uh, a year, he established a stand on a corner, and by 1933, he had a vegetable store on 145th Street uh, and St. Nicholas Avenue called Sugar Hill. And by the time I was born in 1940, that was a grocery store in the South Bronx, Tremont Avenue, anything south of uh, Fordham Road, 190th Street, Street is called the South Bronx. So I was raised in effect, in a very European way. I had to go to the store after school. Many times When my father wasn't feeling well. He'd get me up at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, brought brought me to the Bronx Terminal Market near the Yankee Stadium so I could load the trucks with him. Then he'd drop me off at Fordham Road. My fellow students did not know that I was up at 4 o'clock. I was studying there on the benches and going into school at at 8 o'clock. So it, it was great that I had kind of a a foot in the old country and a foot in the new country. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest of his three children. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's an experience that you can never replace. It gave me confidence. But when you're in a, a grocery store or a vegetable store and you're meeting all kinds of people, uh, that, as a young person, gives you the confidence to deal with almost anybody or sure. anything. And what happens is you make your mistakes early in life. My father was tough. When I made a mistake, uh, I knew about it. And uh, it's amazing that when I went to college and I was 17, uh, I don't think anybody could compete with me in terms of energy discipline because of having that uh, since I was about 8 or 9 years old. But he came looking for a job, and he couldn't find one, so he had to create one. And that's what's great about America, because you can't create jobs. You can't become creative and figure out what you want to do, but you have to go get it. You know, Henry David Thoreau in Walden Pond, and I love these old philosophers and sayings. And I'm a conservative Republican. I know he was a liberal Democrat. But parties don't mean that much to me. It's, it's thinking and creative thinking. He said when he was leaving Walden Pond because he realized he had isolated himself, he couldn't change anything, and he was going back. And he said, you know, I'd rather be on the ship at the mast than in the boiler room. And he said, you know, in life, you have to build castles in the air. In other words, you've got to be a dreamer. Mm. But you better go down and get your fingers dirty and build foundations under those dreams. That's what my father taught me to do.
3: Well, amen to that. You know, your, your experience and the work ethic is, is what just I marvel at. Americans have lost that work ethic, but people that come to America dreaming and seeing that castle in the sky uh, and having then the opportunity, let's just hope and pray that we can keep that, Congressman. Aguardi, because there are things that are happening now that, that cause me to be somewhat concerned that that sort of freedom and ability to create an entrepreneurial uh, creativity might not always be the same as it's been. But I want to switch gears just a little bit, and thank you for sharing that about your dad and your mom. And I think that's, that's invaluable. You talk in your book. Um, you, could you just, first of all, just tell us the name of your book?
5: Right. The name of the book is Unaccountable Congress. It doesn't add up. Uh, it's a title that I thought hard and long about. You know, after spending four years in Congress, having the background of a certified public accountant, I said, I need to do a real public service now and record in a short book, it's only about 100 pages, uh, what I thought was wrong with the system and how we might have the seeds of our own demise within the budget process sure. of the United States of America. Sure. and. Um, so I wrote the book, and then what I put on the cover of the book was my version of a congressman's voting card. Many people, Jay, and by the way, Jay, call me Joe, okay? Okay, thank you. Uh, but my, what, what I thought about when I put that plastic card congress people vote with a card the same size as your credit card. It's a plastic card. It was in my wallet right next to my Visa card. And I realized every time I put this thing in the computer terminal at the end of a row of seats in the House of Representatives, it was increasing the national debt because we had deficits during the Reagan time. And obviously we have worse deficits now. But think about it. I mean, we were increasing the national debt. We tried to, you know, restrain it with Graham Rudman. It didn't work. Uh, With the Budget Enforcement Act, it didn't work. Uh, And we'll get into that a little bit. But I put that card on the cover of the book and the first, chapter i named a congressman's voting card is the most expensive credit card in the world and i put a version, of it on, a version of it on the cover it says credit line unlimited expiration date never bill to future generations and therein is the problem we're not allocating the cost of what we're benefiting from today to ourselves we're hiding it so the next generation pays for it this is not the country my father came to mm-hmm. my father always felt that he wanted to leave something to his children, and he did. Uh, you know, not a vast sum of wealth, but a, a house that was paid for, and we sold it. My brother, sister, and I split that. We gave some money to charity, but at least there was something there, not debt. The well, country it seems is not though, thinking that way anymore. We're well, just it seems as though we are
3: leaving something. It's debt instead of assets to our future generations.
5: And it's hidden debt, because the accounting system is the worst kind. It's not the system that the Securities and Exchange Commission imposes on you If you're a publicly traded corporation or on the board of a publicly traded corporation, that's called generally accepted accounting principles. They're well-prescribed principles, and they have to be used to protect the shareholders. And if you don't do it, you get what is called, you get indicted for securities fraud. That happened with Enron and Tyco, and there are people in jail right now because they did that. But the United States of America is not imposing that system on themselves. They have what they call the cash basis where you can manipulate things very easily. You can defer expenses, accelerate revenues, and there's so many other gimmicks you can use to balance the books superficially, in effect burying a mountain load of debt and putting it on the next generation.
3: Well, I want to get to some of the specifics. I know we won't have time to describe them all, Joe, but I would like to just mention to the listeners that in your book you talk about a deficit. And this book was written, ladies and gentlemen, back in 1992 – but Jay, it's more
5: true today when you think about the fact that our deficit this year—and this is what President Obama has said—is going to be a trillion eight hundred billion dollars. Think about that. We
3: haven't. Well, it's it. hard to think about Joe because a trillion dollars is such a big number. But you talked in your book in 1992 about thirty-one thousand one hundred seventy-four dollars and eighty-nine cents as being the average amount. That's uh, going to have to be paid by each taxpayer going forward into the into the future. That was the debt that was on the books then. How would that stand now? Well, would you it, say it would, how high would that number be now? Because I'm sure it's a lot higher.
5: Well, you know, when you look at numbers, we should look at the the round numbers. There are approximately 300 million people living in the United States today. A uh, hundred million of them file ten uh, forties, actually, as taxpayers. In round numbers, it mm-hmm. could have changed a little bit, but. Basically, if you divide that hundred million into the debt at that time, which was uh, you know about three trillion, you had that thirty-one thousand. Today, the debt on the books is probably right now closer to eleven trillion. Don't forget, we ended the fiscal year with Bush that was September thirtieth, uh, two thousand and eight, with nine point three trillion dollars in bonded debt. The debt limit was nine point eight. Obviously, they had to raise that to accommodate the stimulus and all the other things. But when Obama took over, he started spending even more. And now, if you look at what the debt will be at the end of this fiscal year, you're talking about probably $11 trillion. Wow. Now, if you took that same 100,000 taxpayers, uh, you're talking about 100. It's gone from 31000 to $100,000 per taxpayer. That is a mortgage pretty much on the, kids, the kid in that family that, or the children in that family. Uh, that right. if somebody in that family in the future is going to have to pay that money. Now, right. worse than that, I just told you what is on the books. Right. Debt. In other words, treasury bills, treasury notes, savings bonds add up to $11 trillion. And by the way, it's not only U.S. people that are buying those. Uh, China and Japan account for $2 trillion, and we need more from China and Japan. And mm-hmm. that's a problem. I gave a Testimony in Congress two months ago saying, hey, we've got to watch out for the long-term unsustainability, fiscal unsustainability of the United States of America, especially when we're borrowing from countries that don't share our values, and particularly mm-hmm. China. Now we're hostage to oil from Saudi Arabia, and we don't share the Wahhabi Muslim uh, you know, um, ethic or, 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 or philosophy, no, and, and, cool. and, and no woman had rights there. And now we are doing the same with China, and guess what? Hillary Clinton went there. Did she even say boo about Tibet or Tiananmen Square? No, because we need more Chinese money. So we have to be very careful now that we understand the implications of spending money we don't have and where we're getting it from.
3: Well, we've been doing it for a long time. In your book you talk about Andrew Jackson. He had a a passion for balancing the budget. We did have uh, briefly balanced budgets during Eisenhower and and Clinton. Uh, Do you think, um, you know, is there any chance we're going to go back to any balanced budget? And is there any president that since Andrew Jackson that really shared that sort of passion or desire or understanding the need to balance the budget?
5: Well, I would think we had a real balanced budget under Eisenhower, but there was no way that we had surpluses or a balanced budget under Clinton with the accounting system that I describe in this book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, those were artificial surpluses. If you used the right accounting system and you accrued – you know, losses, the way banks have to do when they have bad debts and things like that, which we don't do, we just wait for a disaster, and then we have what we call a bailout. And, and all of a sudden we float bonds and we add to the national debt. That is not the way you do things in the real world of the Securities and Exchange Commission and the banking system. So the point is that those deficits didn't exist under Clinton. That was a mirage, but mm-hmm. it was a dangerous mirage because it kind of put us to sleep. And I remember people saying, after I wrote the book in 1992, ah, Joe, looks like the book has no value anymore, because now we have surpluses. And Mm -hmm. I said to them, no, under the right accounting system, you have still many debts that are not on the books. In fact, today, I just said what was bonded, if you add Social Security and Medicare alone, you're talking about another $50 trillion that is not on the books Mm -hmm. for the benefits of people living today that have to be paid. And if you're a publicly traded corporation, there are pension rules that require you to report that amount, even though you don't fund it. The issue is not funding. We're not saying put $50 trillion aside, but how about showing a liability for it? Right. We don't do that on the books of the United States.
3: So you go I've to jail if you're in the private sector for not reporting problem. properly, but... Oh, Joe?
5: Yeah, it's a problem.
3: Yeah. You go to jail if you're in the private sector for doing that, but in oh, the public sector... That's
5: securities fraud. You yep. could be indicted and put in jail, as Mr. Kozlowski is now from, uh, I think it's Tyco. Uh, I think it was Tyco, yep. but there several corporations where there are executives sitting in jail, even Enron, as you know. Uh, the chairman passed away, but the chief financial officer is sitting in jail right now, probably meditating on what he should have done right. You know? well,
3: Joe, you describe Congress as being deceitful, um, and keeping the truth from the public sounds to me pretty much like the old mushroom farm, if you know what I mean. Keep them in the dark and feed them. You know what? Uh, ca- can you give us an example or two of how Congress really does that? I know that in your book, yeah, I mean, there's there's numerous examples of the tricks they use, the gimmicks they use, to disguise the truth about their spending and the deficits and so forth. But could you just give us? So you talk about fudging the numbers, off balance sheet treatment. I guess you maybe hit on that one.
5: Well, the big, uh, the but, big, but big would one here to highlight
3: a couple that are maybe the most important in your mind.
5: Starting from the top, the accounting system number one is illegal. Uh, and it should have been changed. We had the Hoover Commission mandated in 1955-56 the right accounting system. Congress was given five years to uh, uh, implement it. Uh, Eisenhower signed it, and it's still not implemented. Why? Because the people are not a constituency for it. They don't understand it. That's why I wrote the book. But then you have, besides the accounting system, you have other budget gimmicks, like, you know, one year in order to balance under Graham Rudman that's strict, formula we had for four years trying to ratchet down the budget 25% a year from 1986, what they did is they created a military payroll that was 53 weeks in one year and 51 in another. another in order to you know, balance it this year, they pushed a week's payroll into the next year. You could do that on the cash basis. Then there's the so-called magic asterisk where you just say, well, we are short $100 million, but you know what? We're going to put an asterisk. Those are savings we're going to find later. And, you can't do that with your bank. I mean, try to use these gimmicks uh, when, you, when you try to go to your bank for a loan or try to show them your, your financial statement. Maybe some of them did that and created the mortgage crisis we just had. Uh, God forbid we go back to that system where people don't have to give financial statements to get a mortgage.
3: Oh, my uh, goodness, yeah. So, you know, um, Thomas Jefferson talked about the, the price of liberty being eternal vigilance, Joe. And what you're talking about here is the American people need to know this so they can about it so they can, you know, vote these rascals out. Isn't that what we need?
5: Absolutely, and that's why I have gone on a crusade since leaving Congress. I formed the foundation Truth in Government. Uh, when I wrote the book, I put it in the foundation so that the proceeds from the book went into it tax-free to then buy more copies of the book. Uh, I can buy 10000 at a time, get it printed, and I give them out at colleges and, and high schools and Uh, anywhere I speak I bring a bag of these books with me and I hand them to the people they take them and I tell them to pass it on to their uh, if you take more copies pass it on I was just at the villages in Florida central Florida and I was invited to speak uh, before the Republican Club of Sumter County and I brought uh, 500 copies of the book Uh, There were about 300 people there and I said, take the other ones send them to your children around America it dawned on me what a great way to distribute this book here are the people in Central Florida. Many of them have kids all over the country. And they yeah. did that. And, and yeah. I, I taped that. And if anybody wants to see that half-hour speech, it's on the website, www.truthingovernment.org. In fact, all of my speeches are there. And uh, I think people would, would learn something from that. And if people want a copy of the book, all they have to do is to write me, uh, email me at the website, jjd uh, jjd.truthingovernment.org dot.org JJD is are my initials Joseph J Dioguardi and I'd be happy to send them a a complimentary copy of the book.
3: That's really fantastic, Joe. We only have about two minutes to go here, and I have to ask you one more question. Recently, the Congress put a great deal of pressure, it seems, uh, on on the banks to sort of or on the financial institutions to start marking things, not marking things to market. Uh, do you have any opinion of that as a, as a CPA?
5: Um, you My know, opinion is that we should not have changed the accounting principles to accommodate the banks or any crisis right now, mm-hmm. because now when you change them, you don't know what the future, what, what is causing the future. Is it the change in the accounting principles or, 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 or substance? There were enough ways to interpret the rules on mark-to-market so that you could have come up with uh, very valid ways to, to, to value uh, the securities that some say could not be valued. I'm not an expert in valuation, but I think this was a way to just game the system once again. I remember when they had the S&L crisis, uh, and we had the big bailout, the mother of all bailouts at that time was New York City, and then the s crisis came, right, the, the savings and loan crisis, that they created accounting principles called RAP, regulated accounting principles, so that you could then... Uh, put values on the books that would kind of justify uh, that these SNLs were not as bad as they were, and that hid the problem even a little bit more. So my feeling is when you start changing rules in midstream, then you don't know what's causing the problem anymore. Right. I would not have changed that. Now, I think- Well, there's no
3: legitimate accounting principle or reason to ch- have changed that, in your view.
5: In my view, no. In my yeah. view, these are not marketable securities. We knew that. But there well, are so alternative the only- ways to, to value things. And, and they could have used those alternatives. Again, uh, you know, maybe in some cases uh, there was a, a, a good reason uh, that these mark-to-market rules didn't work, but then they could have put on a nice big footnote to say what the problem was. Right. That they, were gonna hold us, they weren't going to hold this to the end, and they thought it was valueless now, but the rules prevented us. from uh, There's ways of disclosing those things. Sure. But to change it so that now the auditors have to face these issues on the balance sheets and whatnot, uh, midstream, to me that was not the answer.
3: Well, that, that seems to be uh, what I would have expected from you, Joe. And with your background, I think we've got to respect your, your opinion on that as well, because you would have been the only member of Congress, if you were still in, who would have been able to opine on that intelligently. Joe,
5: we're well, out of time. I would have walked with my opinions, uh, not that I'm an expert on valuation, but they wouldn't have uh, been able to make that change without really thinking hard and long about all of its implications. And even right. now, I think there are many in the accounting profession that are regretting the fact that we even opened that door.
3: Oh, well, I'm sure that's true. Joe, I want to thank you so much for being my special guest this week. And, folks, I really do hope that you'll go to Joe's website and, and get a copy of his book and share it with your friends because this is of utmost importance to us as Americans at least and really to everybody around the world because America is so important in the world. And if we go down, if our budget system takes us down into bankruptcy and into a, a state of, of ill repair, we're in big trouble the whole world. So we can have to all do our own part to try to help each other understand the severity of it. And Joe, thanks again for your work. Your your well work Thank helping you for people the understand. opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much and we'll be right back with the with the wrap-up section of this week. Don't go away. <laughs>
2: Know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.
1: For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today. At coralgold.com. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store.
2: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the website for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Now back to our program.
3: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. Well, we just heard a little bit of information from Congressman Guardi. He had so much more to tell us, uh, and I do hope that you'll go to his website to learn more about uh, what he's uh, talking about and to share that with your friends. This show is about uh, turning hard times into good times, but in order to do that, we need to understand the very basic causes for our problems, and certainly the federal budget deficit is part of the problem. It's certainly not the whole problem. We've had a dramatic increase in total debt. You know, We hear a lot about the federal debt, or we used to hear, we don't hear too much anymore. We hear a lot about the federal budget deficit, but it's the deficits of Americans, individuals, everybody. Most everybody seems to be living on plastic these days. In the old days you would save and then you would consume. These days you consume and then worry about saving, worry about paying it back in the future. Don't really worry about it much at all. Just have a good time live for today and don't worry about tomorrow. And that's what the congressman was talking about at the government level, but we're doing it as a society as a whole, and the whole world has, has, has really thrived as a result of this consumption by, American, by Americans. And as Chen Lin told us in the first segment of this show, uh, he doesn't believe that the Chinese can pick up the slack, that Americans are not any longer able to, uh, to spend because we are broke. Americans are broke. We've hit the wall now, and that is of great concern. And in the stimulus now, we're seeing trillions of dollars that have to be raised by the federal government. And one of the most outstanding, I think, alarming things I've seen take place in the market recently was last Friday. When the short-term two-year T-bill skyrocketed, it rose from about 85 basis points, that's 0.85%, to 1.3% in one day. Now, 1.3% isn't very high for a two-year Treasury, but that kind of a move in one day is very, very dramatic now, we had been seeing a rise in the long-term interest rates, and there's been some concern about the 10-year treasury has been rising very dramatically because mortgage rates are set off of 10-year treasuries. And, uh, and so the federal government has been very, very worried. The policymakers have been concerned because they want to keep interest rates low so people can keep affording to pay their mortgages and roll over their mortgage rates uh, into lower rates and, and try to keep the housing market from continuing to fall in value. But now we're seeing the rates skyrocket in the short end of the yield curve, which is suggesting to me that there may be a loss of confidence in the currency itself. And, you know, people would not want to hold long-term debt if they're afraid of inflation, but uh, if we're seeing a mass exodus from the Chinese and other people, uh, or at least an exodus, or perhaps the real issue is not the exodus from the Treasuries, but just the fact that the tremendous surge in demand of the government's borrowing needs for all of these bailouts now is is really starting to show up in the markets. We're looking at a situation now, we're hearing lots of propaganda about green shoots. The green shoots, it's, it's to create an image of confidence in the American people. Frankly, I don't see much reason to be optimistic about green shoots, that we're going to have in springtime, and then we're going to be followed by summer, and we're going to have all this prosperity around the corner, which was what they said in the 1930s. It's very fascinating to see that the adjusted monetary base that reflects the amount of money that's pumped into the monetary system has skyrocketed. I mean, we haven't seen anything like it in many, many decades to nearly 40% annual growth, and it had been down around 0%. It had fluctuated up to 10% over the last number of decades, between 0 and 10% for the most part. All of a sudden, with this huge surge of money pumped into the system, we've seen it the adjusted monetary base rise very dramatically. At the same time, the M three, which includes a lot of less um, liquid measures of money, has been shrinking. And what's been happening is very much the same thing that happened in the nineteen thirties. The banks won't lend. Why won't they lend? Because they can't find people that can pay them back. It's as simple as that. As I just mentioned, the credit card holders um, actually credit card holders are losing their credit lines. They're not being renewed. They're being taken back by the banks because the banks don't want that risk. And we're, we have not seen the bottom yet of this housing market according to the Case-Shiller Index. It looks like we're still falling very dramatically. A little slight tick-up last, uh, last reporting period, but it is, by all stretch of the imagination, not over because there's lots of new... Um, Short-term loans that are going to have to be – mortgages going to have to be rolled over pretty soon. And, of course, that's the reason they really want to keep the rates down, because there's another big chunk of these mortgages, uh, short-term mortgages, uh, that are going to have to be rolled over this spring and into the summer. So uh, that, we believe, the housing sector uh, has not yet seen the bottom as much as we wish that it had The real thing, the real concern that I have is when I look forward at the, uh, uh, try to ask where are the jobs going to come from, we're still seeing losses of jobs. The consumer's ability to spend is really drying up very rapidly, but we're seeing a plunge in earnings, the biggest decrease in earnings, bigger by far than the 1930s, and the S&P 500, the PE ratio, is far, far above anything we've ever seen in history. It's double what it was in the 30s, and it's it's substantially higher than it's been in the last couple of decades. So I think we're in for a very major decline in the equity markets. We're watching Robert McHugh very, very carefully and his advice in terms of the C wave down. We have a B wave up. We're going to try to profit as much as we can. We're going to look to get out of some of our energy stocks, our uranium stocks, and maybe even some of our gold stocks and get into cash, hedge ourselves with the Prudent Bear Fund when the time comes. We'll be talking to our subscribers every week Uh, in our newsletter. So we hope that you'll subscribe. Call Claudio Bossi at um, 718-457-1426 for more information or go to our website at miningstocks.com. Next week, we're we're going to interview CEOs of two gold companies, companies that are our sponsors, actually, Coral Gold and Hawthorne Mining. We're going to interview David Wolfen of Coral Gold and Richard Barkley of Hawthorne Mining. And uh, we're also going to um, uh, talk, and probably have some call-ins, and invite you to call in and ask questions of, of those two guys, as well as myself and Lena Bonasriddas and Roger Wiegand, Chen Lin. I want to thank those sponsors, of course, and I also want to thank my excellent executive producer, Tacy Trump. Tacy uh, Tacy has been magnificent. I couldn't even find my way to show up to talk to them, it weren't very uh, very well organized. Tacey Trump, uh, my executive producer. Thanks to Tacey as well. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessing to you.
2: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor.